Hello and welcome to the Sleep Teacher Pod, the podcast for all the parents out there who just want sleep. I'm Christy, owner of The Sleep Teacher, and I am joined by my colleague, Beck. If you are in the trenches of sleep deprivation, we see you, we feel you, and trust us, this podcast is going to become your new BFF. We want you to know that you can still be a lovingly attached parent and get good sleep. You don't have to choose between the two. So pop Bub in the carrier, grab yourself a coffee, put those headphones in, because we have all the sleep tips coming your way. Let's get napping, Mama. Hello, everybody. It is Christy and Beck from The Sleep Teacher. We are back for another episode of The Sleep Teacher Pod. This week, chatting all things reflux. If you have had a little one that suffers from this, you'll know just how much it can play havoc on not only their sleep, but just their overall mood and yours as well. It's not fun. But the good news is our special guest today... Anya from The Baby Reflux Lady, or known as The Baby Reflux Lady. Anya is joining us all the way from the UK, and she is just amazing, and she has all the answers. So she really oh, well, so We nice. had a, such a good time talking to Anya. So this trailer is pre-recorded. Um, I will be in Bali when this one goes live. So... <laughs> <laughs> Rub it in. Sorry, guys. Rub it in. But I look, I do have to get through a like almost seven hour flight with three kids. So <laughs> wish me luck. Yeah. How's that going for you? Yeah. Got, <laughs> got the iPads charged. charged. Got the movies downloaded. <laughs> Everything's ready to go. Look, it's definitely getting so much easier now, you know, with my youngest being seven. Like it's honestly just, well, I wouldn't say walk in the park, but it's become a lot easier considering we used to travel like with them when they were babies. I remember going to America and they were all so tiny and just spreading ourselves between the three. I think I've told you too when Minka vomited like a whole bottle before of milk on someone. It was horrible. It was mortifying. But I don't know. Like one of my friends is traveling with us and she is taking her baby and she hasn't traveled with a baby before. And she's really nervous. And I just said to her, do you know what? When it's not your baby you don't worry. Like a baby crying doesn't bother you as much if it's not your own. I think you just panic a little bit more and worry that everyone else is going to be throwing daggers at you. Oh, it's like, it's mortifying. I feel like, like, but I think as well, people come prepared that don't have children. Like they have noise cancelling headphones and often you hear stories of like people offering, like, do you need some help? Like, do you, you know, so yeah, but it is totally like cringe when when it's happening yeah, and it you're is, in the moment. It really is. And I like I said, I don't think anyone else gives it a second thought. Like, but when it's your own, and the more anxious you get, your baby can start to sense it too, and you start pacing, and you're like, yeah. <sighs> and they just so, give zero f's. Oh, like they no. just don't care. <laughs> like I am going to make you work for this holiday. <laughs> but yes, anyway, it's worth it when you get there. It's worth it. Oh. <laughs> worth the all-inclusive bar package, trust me. <laughs> but, yeah, so anyway, we are very excited. Anya, like we said, is a wealth of knowledge and not only is she going to talk about reflux, but she's also going to give us some tips for treating it because she has a very special way of diagnosing and also treating reflux outside of the traditional medication. And she also touches not just on reflux but you know, colic and all the things under that sort of umbrella of unsettled cow's milk protein tolerances or allergies. Yeah. um, All the good stuff. So you need, yeah, anyone out there 
with a little bub. You need to listen to this one. So pop the headphones in, guys. Let's get into it. Hi, Anya. Would you like to tell our listeners a little bit about what you do? Yeah, of course, Kirsty. Thank you for the introduction. So I am holistically focusing on reflux in babies. And when I say reflux, we also include silent reflux, colic, allergies such as cow's milk protein allergy and other food intolerances. And the reason they're all included is because they all present with a massive common suite of symptoms. And very often they're treated the same way by the medical community and are really poorly understood. So the way I approach reflux and this, all of my learning has been born out of my two daughters themselves who between them officially struggled with colic, reflux, silent reflux, caseoprotein allergy, oh nut allergies, sulfide allergies, and many other things. So we had a learning journey and I had a three-year relationship with postnatal depression through that as well. So I have lived two journeys of reflux. And I think anybody who's listening who has a child who's unsettled, you know, you must know, first of all, you're not alone, but also your journey is going to be different to anybody else's. It doesn't mean that we have to stay alone. I lost all of my sense of self, myself, my sense of identity through those three years. And I emerged the other side with a whole load of answers to questions because, you know, my background was an engineer. I always need to know why things happened. That was my burning question. Why is my daughter crying? Why is she so upset? Why is she telling me she's in pain? And the doctors would tell me, no, she's not in pain. She's fine. I'm like, mm. like anybody who's had a baby's reflux will know that piercing scream is not a child saying I'm tired. Mm -hmm. You know, there is some sort of discomfort or pain. It's a cry for help. That's what a, a baby's asking for. And as parents, I think we're biologically unable to ignore them. And so, yeah, you know, we, ha we have to learn to listen to ourselves. And I did, thankfully, I didn't get the answers from my two girls. But I did get a lot of insights and answers to then build this massive picture. And, you know, I figured out where to look for answers and how to bring some of the research together in a novel way that hadn't been done before. And I discovered over 30 different causes of reflux, silent reflux, colic, etc. And my engineering brain came into play to start seeing where we can identify different groups of symptoms or behaviors for a child that then allow us to pinpoint what's going on, what's causing it. And when we understand the cause, we then know, well, what do we do about it? Right. 30 causes. That, yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> so can you explain what's the difference between reflux and silent reflux? Because obviously, you know, from my point of view, I would imagine that the vomit is reflux. The silent yep. reflux is going, the same symptoms I'm imagining, but without the, the spit up. Is that correct? Kirsty, you're absolutely 100% correct. The only difference between reflux and silent reflux is that the spit up comes out of the mouth. That's it. It's not silent in terms of its sound. It's not silent in terms of how baby responds. So being really specific, reflux, either reflux or silent reflux, is regurgitation. It's the movement of anything from the stomach into the esophagus. And then how far up the esophagus it comes. So silent reflux babies will often be seen swallowing at times, not feeding time, for example, because they're getting this regurgitated material into the back of the throat and they're swallowing it back there. So it's not coming past the mouth. Whereas babies who have true reflux, 
we'll be told they, there's lots of vomiting. Some of them have projectile vomiting that literally can hit the other side of the room sometimes. The symptoms are a bit more obvious. Yeah, they, they are a little bit more obvious, but there's lots more to look for. Like there are behaviours that children have. When I work with clients, actually for anybody, my free symptoms tracker is the starting point of any journey through reflux. There's over 80 different symptoms and behaviours to look for in any child. And what's equally important is not just what a child has, but also what they don't have. You know, we use the absence of symptoms to rule out certain things as well as ruling in certain things, depending on what's going on. You know, it's a complex jigsaw puzzle, but once we've got the instructions of how to put it together, we can do that quite quickly. Sure. And what would be some of the most common signs that a parent could pick up on that their little one may have reflux? Okay. So the reason that there's no set of symptoms, and I'll go through the most common symptoms, and I want to caveat this, that your baby might not have any of these and could still have reflux or silent reflux or colic. And the reason is that none of these are a disease. They are all symptoms in their own right with something else causing them. So if your baby is really unsettled, there's something going on. And it's our job as parents, in my view, to listen and to get curious about well, what else is going on. So very often we will see physical behaviours such as baby crunching their tummy or pulling their knees up, demonstrating that there's some sort of digestive discomfort going on. They will cry more than you think is normal. So multiple hours of crying or crying that isn't consoled by being picked up or isn't consoled by the hug or, you know, after a sleep, they still wake up and they've had a good rest, but they're still overtired. We have, of course, got the vomiting. We've got that swallowing away from meals. We've got disrupted sleep patterns, as I'm sure you're aware. You know, babies who seem to be unable to connect sleep cycles or who come out of a sleep cycle and then they're awake. They're almost awake because their body's going, oh, I need help to sleep again because I can't get comfortable myself. So if there was food allergies involved, we could have mucus in the stool, we could have green stools, we could have diarrhea, we could have constipation. We don't have to have any of those. We can also have, you know, excessive flatulence and tummy pains and bloating, all related to some sort of other thing going on. So, I mean, there's quite a lot, but my general rule of thumb is for parents to ask themselves, if you think your baby is more unsettled than they should be, then they probably are. And then it's an invitation to get curious about what could be going on. Because if it's one day in a month, well, that's not going to be reflux. But if there's every day and we have this pattern and baby's unconsolable, then there is something that we want to look into further and explore and find out what's causing it. Because when we understand what's causing a child's discomfort, we then get the ability to go, oh yeah, okay, that is something they'll grow out of. Or no, that is something we want to take action on. For some babies, it's what they're fed. You know, it could be something in a breastfeeding parent's milk. It could be something in one of the formulas that they're drinking. It could be something in the medication that's causing disruptive symptoms within their digestive system. We have things like oral ties, lip ties, cheek ties, tongue ties. We have things from birth. So intervention in birth like bontus, forceps, induction, all create excess pressure on baby's head, which causes a structural misalignment, which can then in turn cause baby to not feed comfortably. There's so many things that can cause and contribute to reflux. And it's about getting the right thing for the right child. 
It's so interesting with the food aspect of it because my second child, he's anaphylactic to dairy. He has an EpiPen. He had my breast milk for eight months and I had dairy every day. You know, he had very mild eczema. It didn't disturb him. It didn't keep him up. He wasn't fussed by it, but that was the only thing. And then when I gave him like his first formula bottle, he had, you know, his first anaphylactic reaction. And I was like, yeah, what? Like he's had dairy his whole life through me. (laughs) So it's such a, I think every case obviously would be different, but yeah, I think that's wild that he was exposed to it and not reacting. But then when he had it in that form, you know, his body couldn't handle it. Yeah. And I mean, what's really interesting in that, Beck, and this is something that can happen, which is why we need to be cautious when we introduce food to baby direct is because when it goes through mom's bodies first, it's, you know, it's all digested by your body first. Mm. And a lot of the proteins and things are broken down right. really well by your body before they get into your milk and then into baby. So they are already this, you know, breast milk is the equivalent of the hydrolyzed milks. You know, there are trace proteins. You will absolutely find traces of dairy in breast milk. However, they're not the big, fully undigested molecules that baby gets when they have something directly mm. themselves. Yes, very interesting. And in terms of reflux, I think we've seen a bit of a rise in that really unsettled behavior. And a lot of that is, you know, they're going to their GP, especially at that six-week checkup. And it's, you know, they're told, oh, yeah, your baby has colic. They grow out of it. It's normal. How do we know um, that, okay, if we've got a really unsettled baby, that it's, yeah, it's colic and we just have something that we have to put up with and they grow out of it or that could be reflux and, you know, go down that road. Yeah. Well, I don't actually believe that colic is something we have to wait for babies to grow out of. Okay. So what colic is, it's waiting for the baby's body to mature from a digestive point of view. So when a baby is born, they don't produce any amylase, which is the main carbohydrate digestive enzyme. Babies who are breastfed get some human amylase in the breast milk, which supports the breakdown of carbohydrates. They start to produce salivary amylase, which is in the mouth. They start that at about three months. So that's like this magical, you know, babies will grow out of colic by 12 Mm. weeks. That's when they start to produce the digestive enzymes to break down carbohydrates. In the meantime, what's happening is that the carbohydrates baby is consuming either from the breast milk or from their formula, are fermenting in their gut because they're not being broken down properly. So in the fermentation process, the official term is incomplete hydrolysis of carbohydrates. So what happens is it produces hydrogen gas as a byproduct. And there we go. We have our source of gas, distension, and it can present as trapped wind because what we know is 95% of babies with colic go instantly calm as soon as they pass some wind. And that tells us that what's causing them to be upset is this digestive discomfort in the first instance. And so we look for that source of air. So for some, it is the development of the digestive system. For others, they're actually just drinking lots of air that they're not burping up. Once something goes through the stomach, it's only the long way out. Yeah, okay. Is there a way to lessen those symptoms if you are having a baby which showing that really uncomfortable, very unsettled behavior for a lot of their day? Absolutely. And again, this is where I always come back to let's really understand exactly what's going on because very often reflux or silent reflux gets misdiagnosed as colic 
my daughter, we were told that Sunflower had colic and what she had was silent reflux. She was actually regurgitating. She had that. I look back at videos of her. It makes me so sad that I can see this constant swallowing going on. But the doctors, the health visitors and public health nurses all missed it. She was doing this all the time. Like literally every video I have of her has her doing that, like almost eating when there's no milk around. Mm. But I was told she had colic. And while she had digestive maturity challenges, she also had silent reflux as well. So I really caution parents rather than let's just change the milk because changing the milk might not be the right thing to do. The milk baby's drinking might be absolutely the right one for them. It might be that they have a tongue tie, for example, that's causing them to take on air when they're drinking. It might be how the bottle is being held Mm -hmm. that is them to take on air while they're drinking. Like there are so many little things. And for me, it's about getting the right one first. Yeah. And changing the formula is not going to be the answer to that or the, you know, the changing from breast milk to formula or whatever. Yeah. And it's so hard because so many, especially first time mothers, I think it really robs them of that really special newborn time. They leave that time so, you know, post-traumatic stress because yeah, just the screaming and being told that's normal you know, it, they'll grow out of it. I mean, being told that when you've got a two-week-old that oh, in a couple of months they'll grow out of it, that's really scary. Full of hands, yeah, it's, really. it's awful. <laughs> so it's so good that we're having this conversation that there are other things that, you know, if you are being blocked by your healthcare to keep, you know, reaching out and jump over to you and have, you know, try and get some answers to help. Yeah. And what I will say is the reason our healthcare systems don't have these answers is because they're not taught them. Like mm-hmm. there is no doctor or pediatrician intentionally saying, I think it's fine. I'm just going to leave your baby in pain. That's what I certainly interpreted what I heard, not the words that were actually said. But the medical system, they truly believe that reflux is normal. And so we have to remember that's the place they're coming from. Whereas I don't believe it's normal for the human body to experience pain on a constant basis or to be in discomfort. You know, our bodies want to be comfortable. You know, I'm not aware that I have a little toe until the moment I stub it on the door of the bathroom. And in that moment, my world closes in and there's nothing but my little yeah. toe. And, or your elbow. You know, the house could be on fire. <laughs> oh, oh my goodness. Yeah, it's don't say that. Worst. <laughs> I can feel that now. But it's similar, I think, for babies who've got this pain or this discomfort going on, they can't engage with the rest of the world. So it's our job as parents, I believe, to listen to them. And if we can't get the answers from the doctors, it doesn't mean there are not answers to be had. We just need to either ask different questions or ask different people. What about the esophagus and the flap? Did you want to touch on that? Do you believe that there are babies that have that and that is purely the reason that they've got reflux or do you believe that there's still an underlying issue? So there's always an underlying issue. And the reason I say this is because I assume you're asking about the weak lower esophageal valve that parents are told is the cause of baby's reflux. So every single child on earth and both you, Kirsty, and you, Beck, and me, when we were born, had a weak lower esophageal valve. And not every single human on earth has reflux. So therefore, it's not and cannot be the cause of reflux. The reason this weakness is there, we all know what we observe in babies. Every single baby is born with very little motor control. You know, we're not baby horses. We don't get control of our limbs within four hours and get up and walk. We have a lot of time to develop 
muscular control, all of the developmental awareness that we have these limbs and things around us. But all of the muscles in the body are weak when we are born. And the lower esophageal valve is actually a ring of muscle around the tube. It also has a little bit of weakness, but it just clamps shut loosely. That's all it ever does, because this is supposed to be a two-way valve. You know, if anybody says that it's supposed to close tighter, it doesn't. Ladies, have either of you ever hiccuped or burped? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's Have you ever thrown up? Unfortunately. You know, these are, yeah, it's, it's unpleasant, but it happens. These are all normal processes for the body to do. You know, they are protective mechanisms. Hiccuping and burping is a way that the body regulates air in the digestive system. It doesn't like air in the digestive system because, oh, it's in the stomach. Let's get rid of it before it goes into the intestines. That's what we do that for. So we need to be able to release this valve to let that air back up out of the stomach. And from a vomiting point of view, vomiting is a really important protective mechanism. You know, we fail to think very often as the stomach as part of our immune system. But that's what stomach acid does, one of the big roles it has. And there are senses in the stomach. So if you ever eat you know, a piece of chicken that maybe passed its best, the stomach's job, the stomach will go, not having that, and it will get rid of it fast through vomiting. It's a protective mechanism going, that could hurt me, I want to get rid of it. So the ability of the body to regurgitate and to reflux is normal. It happening a lot is not. So we have to look at why else it happens or why is it happening for particular children. So the two most common issues going on in the stomach to cause reflux are an allergy, which is that I don't like it, get it out. Very often cows with protein allergy, but I have to say that is not the only thing that causes allergies and food intolerances in babies by a long way. And also then when we overfill the stomach, and this could be, it could be overfull with the volume of milk a little baby's drinking, or it could be overfull with milk and air. So to explain a little bit more, I assume everybody's familiar with balloons. Mm -hmm. And if I got you to half fill a balloon with water and then loosely tie a knot on the top, if I asked you to squeeze it, you'd be relatively comfortable squeezing it because, you know, after we've used balloons for 20 years or so, we know it's going to expand in one side if we squeeze the other. The stomach is a bit like that. It's an elasticated bag of muscle. We put milk into it. It starts to mechanically churn. So it squeezes at one end, contracts at one end, expands at the top. It's, it contracts at the top and it expands at the bottom. And it does this to mechanically mix whatever food and milk we put in it with digestive juices. So going back to the balloon again, if we got another balloon, and I asked you to fill it to its maximum capacity so there was no space left. You wouldn't be squeezing it. With, exactly. <laughs> the very same principle. Yeah. So when we overfill a child's stomach, when it tries to contract to do something and mix the juices, there's nowhere for the milk to go but up into the esophagus. Mm -hmm. Right. And so that's why a lot of kids, we get reflux. So should we burp reflux babies? Always. We should always burp in most babies. However, yes. we don't need to wait for feeding time to burp baby. Okay. So you're suggesting that just during awake time, just have them up and try and get some air out or? Yeah. So babies, yeah. as humans, as little humans, we take on air all the time. But particularly if baby is unsettled. So in crying, they go, wah! <gasps> and in that inhalation, they fill their stomachs as well as their lungs with air. So that's a source of air intake. If we know there's air in there, 
we can get air out. But birthing a baby when they're more relaxed is going to be more effective than when they're tense. If a baby's like, I'm in pain, I'm in pain, I'm in pain, the whole system, their whole upper body is clenched tight. It's not going to release air gently. And so it stores it all in, waiting for the big explosive when we can't hold it in, you know, projectile vomits that happen. If we get periods where baby is a bit more relaxed and their body is loose and relaxed and comfortable, that's the ideal time to burp. And, you know, burping, if babies are bringing up milk straight after feeds, one great thing to do is burp them before the feed. See if there's any air in there before they have their milk because we're reducing that volume inside the stomach. Is there babies who seem to bring up their whole feed? I know it looks more than what it actually is. Should we be re-offering another whole bottle or like a breastfeed or like does that make it worse? Does that, you know, make them... Yeah. Do we just move on? Yeah. Like, does the overfeeding exacerbate? Or like, yeah, like, do we need to offer another feed if we think they have, you know, spewed up their whole feed? Yeah. So for this, every baby's going to be different. We need to take into account, are they gaining weight? So if a baby's gaining weight, even with the spit up, then they're getting what they need in terms of nutrition and energy and calories from their milk. If they're not gaining weight properly or if they're losing weight, then we need to get to the bottom of it quickly. What we don't want to do is force baby to feed. So again, every like every child is going to be different. Every situation is going to be different. If baby is bringing up all of their feed or a huge amount of feed every time and not gaining weight, then we need to understand why they're not keeping it down. And you know, it will take less than an hour to an hour and a half to figure this out and then go, okay, we've got a plan. Mm-hmm. And when we've got that plan in place, we can see changes within like a day or two when we have the right thing for the right child. So there's no yes, always offer another feed. There isn't a don't offer a feed. It also read baby. Are they still hungry? Are they still asking for the milk? Mm -hmm. Be led by baby because they're telling us everything we need to know. As parents, we can listen. You know, I remember thinking I didn't understand my baby. I couldn't figure it out what she was telling me. When I got to my second, I'm like, hang on, I used to be a baby. Like, I used to speak this language. I used to express myself with my body movements alone. So I started to take a step back and go, right, what, what is she telling me? Yeah. You know, and I think that when we start to tune into that, because as parents, we already know, like, if people are listening to this podcast, you're already listening to your baby in order to tune into this mm. podcast. You're like, I, I want to know something more. Sleep deprivation, it is tough. I have been there and I know it's not fun. It's a tough gig being a parent, let alone a sleep-deprived parent. So whether you're dealing with cat napping from a four-month-old or bedtime battles with a four-year-old, we have the tools and support to help guide you to a better night's sleep. No more fighting the nap, no more fighting bedtime, no more night wakes. You don't have to just survive on this parenting journey of broken sleep. You can really thrive. Our team have supported over 15,000 families worldwide and we want to help you. Please don't put up with another night of broken sleep. Find our details in our show note and get started. I think it's really hard, again, as like your first time parent when you feel like and you know that something is wrong, but you're constantly being told, no, it's normal. It's not like it's all fine. I had a friend who had, it was her fifth daughter and she ended up having a cow's milk allergy, protein allergy. Yeah. She screamed like inconsolable, 
you know, mum knew there was something wrong. She'd had four children before her. She was still, as a fifth-time mother, being told, oh, you know, she's probably bored, she'll grow out of it. She ended up having a feeding aversion because, you know, every time, I'm assuming it was so painful, every time that milk was going in. So I think it is really hard, you know, when you're being told, especially when you don't have experience and this is all you know, she was lucky in the fact that she knew that this was not normal behaviour and she pushed and pushed, you know, and advocated and got the result. But, yeah, it's so hard when you're sort of being told to second-guess that intuition, I think. Absolutely. It is. It's heartbreaking. And, you know, sometimes my heart breaks when I think back as well. And I was like, I was asking for so many questions outside when I knew in my heart and in my gut, like I knew my there was something going on for my baby. So I think the biggest thing I can say to any, especially new parent, but second, third, fifth time parents know as well, we are each the expert in our own children. Mm. Like I am the world's leading expert in my two girls until they become experts in themselves. And we should seek advice from, I believe, doctors, me, you guys, we should all be the interviewees and the parents should be the interview panel and they go, right, what have you got to say about this? What have you got to say? What have you? And pick what works. Pick what resonates and makes sense. And then do what works and don't do what doesn't. Unless, you know, and we have to always caveat that doing something for 30 seconds, it's probably not going to work. Sometimes you've got to put in the effort of there's, you know, a few days of repetition or a week or two of repetition and holding boundaries or whatever it is. But it, when we understand why we are doing something and what we're trying to achieve with it, it's much easier to stick with the plan. Mm. And if your doctor is able to give you the plan that lays out exactly, you're going to do this because it will address these symptoms. This will then address these symptoms. And therefore, we're going to get your baby back to being completely comfortable and happy and healthy in their own body. Then that sounds to me like a great plan. And in all of my work with my clients, you know, I aim to educate parents. I choose to give knowledge because these are not my choices to make. I want all the people I work with to know what they're doing, why they're doing it, and if it's not working, why it might not be working, so that they are then able to make the decisions around their own child's reflux or colic or allergies. They have that information. They're like, yeah, I now know what I'm doing. I know what these things mean. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm a bit like a dictionary for reflux. You know, what are these symptoms? How do they go together? And so I teach parents to read their children or the child's reflux. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess from our point of view, right, over here, quite commonly a, a scenario would be that a parent is, you know, dealing with a little one with all these symptoms and they're, you know, probably absolutely exhausted at their wit's end. They go to their GP and they come home with a prescription. What we see happen is they'll be medicated and then all of a sudden, like say, you know, six, eight, nine, ten months down the track, they'll stop that medication. And that reflux as such in inverted commas has subsided. In your view, would you think that that underlying cause has just now been like matured and they've outgrown that underlying cause? Is that why it wasn't so much the medication? Although they do, with medication, we do often see less like crying, you know, it seems to make it better. I guess there's a, yeah, a yeah. reason for that. It's obviously, but it is helping the symptoms, but is it actually, it's not treating the problem is it just treating the symptoms yeah while that problem while that was yeah mature yeah yeah so 
if we start with the medications, can what they do when they work is they neutralize the stomach acids so that when it is regurgitated, it's not physically burning the esophagus. So it's not hurting mm. the esophagus and baby's not feeling pain there and therefore they cry less because they're like, oh yeah, that doesn't hurt anymore. Okay. It doesn't address why the reflux is happening in the first instance. For some babies, and I have worked with some where, you know, the medication magically cures reflux and baby stops spitting up. So, well, actually, if we look at the passion, what's happening is it's not causing pain anymore. Therefore, they're not crying to say I'm in pain. So they have reduced massively their air intake. Mm. And therefore, yeah. they've almost immediately stopped refluxing. Now, I've worked with kids who, one child in particular, the true underlying cause was one day of just exhaustion. They missed naps. They were out. They were overstimulated. I think the child was about three or four weeks at the time. Constant overstimulation. This is before COVID. This is when people went out and did things. You know, certainly in the UK, we adopted a cultural pressure of if you can walk after birth, you should be in the cafe with your antenatal group sort of thing. There was no home time. I think things are a little bit better now. But this child, we were out and about doing lots of things. The baby got she got really upset because she was overstimulated and overtired. So she started to cry and she cried and she cried and she cried and that increases air intake. So the next feet, she had reflux. She regurgitated and that caused her to go, I'm not happy with that. I'm going to cry about that because that hurts. And so starts the cycle of reflux. And so she kept crying and she kept being in pain. So she kept crying and she kept being in pain. So medications can stop if the underlying cause is just crying, being an over intake of air, then they can actually, you know, it's like a fire break to go, right, we need to get some peace here. But it's not the medication that is curing the reflux. The medication has given a break to the symptoms that then baby's going, oh yeah, now I can return to normal. For most babies, the medication doesn't address the underlying cause and they don't grow out of it. They adapt. So sometimes their body will mature and so they are able to break down foods better than they were before. But medication massively impedes their ability to extract nutrients properly from food. But others who have, for example, tongue ties or structural misalignments from birth maybe or plagiocephaly or, you know, flat head on flat spots on their head and things like that. They learn to adapt how they move their mouth, face, tongue, etc., and so it looks like the reflux has gone away. So the reflux symptom goes away, but the long-term impact of poor tongue function remain. I know in Australia, there's a huge number and a huge awareness around myofunctional therapy and the importance of the tongue. But the Western medical community will never speak about the tongue. They tell us still in the UK, they tell us that tongue ties are only important if baby's being breastfed. It's like, wow, how can we compute it? You know, we're using our tongues right now to speak. If you try and tether your tongue to the floor of your mouth and hold it down there, you can't really articulate your words very well. You know, we use our tongue to manipulate food when we're eating it. We use our tongue to swallow safely. You know, when I meet a baby who has been diagnosed with dysphagia, which is difficulty swallowing, it's like, mm, I'm always going straight to investigate that tongue function. Always. That's where I go first. So the impact of tongue tie can continue for a lifetime. You know, I myself have a tongue tie and I frequently, more than I want to, will splutter or choke almost on a drink because I do not have a safe swallow. Mm. And I have to think about swallowing and how I swallow all the time. 
my posture is pulled forward because my tongue tie pulls me forward. I get lower backache because of my tongue tie. I have restricted mobility in my shoulders because of my tongue tie. Now, there are so many things that identifying and resolving the cause in infancy can give a lifetime of benefit. Yeah, for sure. When we're just touching on food, is some parents will introduce solids in the hopes that it might lessen those symptoms of reflux. What are your thoughts on solids and reflux? Should we be delaying? Yeah, so or? we shouldn't delay and we shouldn't bring early. We should still respect baby's development of when they are ready for solids. Introducing solids early, so before readiness, I despise the age requirements. Of, you know, I don't think we need to be treating people as a group of stupid things anymore. You know, the medical community keeps saying solids around six months. Mm. It's not around six months. What it is, is when baby's able to sit up on independently, when they're able to hold their head up and when they are demonstrating that they're interested in food. And being able to sit up is the most important one with holding their head up because in this position, the esophagus is open and straight. Whereas if baby is slouched or propped up by cushions in their high chair, the esophagus is curved and so we're increasing the risk of choking. Mm. I feel like even a lot of families are going more towards four months of um, juicy solids. Mm. Yeah, it's getting earlier. Yeah. And the theory, the theory is that milk is too thin. But let me ask you, ladies, do you think any child should be able to drink water and hold it down? Mm. No. We are designed to drink water. We should be able to keep it down. So if we're not able to keep it down, it's not that the milk is too thin. We need to ask why. Mm. What else is going on? And equally, because of digestive development, reflux actually gets worse for 54% of babies with reflux when we introduce solids. Is that the same for thickness as well? We said we have, I don't know if you have that in the UK, like yeah, we do pop a thick formula. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, a lot of thickeners will make, so they may not make the regurgitative reflux worse, but they make the digestive discomfort horrendous because they are, so for example, I don't, do you guys have Carabelle? Carabelle's one of the main ones here. They're they're made with they're made with <laughs> can't remember if you can't see us. They can only hear us. <laughs> no, sorry, yeah. we don't. Well, the the what they're they're made with complex carbohydrates. And very often maltodextrin is one of the ingredients used, and that ferments in the gut. It absorbs a whole lot of fluid, it contributes to constipation. So while it might make it more difficult for baby to bring up milk, it also makes it more difficult for them to bring up air, which in turn then pushes more air down into the, into the digestive system and moves the discomfort to the other end of the body rather than up here. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think we need to be asking the question of if a thickener is helping baby, why is it helping? What's going on that they can't drink, you know, some of the consistency of water? Because really, as humans, we want them to be able to drink water and keep it down. I would not be happy if I had to throw up my coffee 10 minutes after I drank it every day. <laughs> I want the caffeine. <laughs> You just keep drinking more, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah, just just keep pouring it in. My body is telling me I need another coffee. <laughs> yeah. Oh dear. We shouldn't would agree. <laughs> so, is there certain positions that are best, like to support our little ones when feeding, if they do have those reflux symptoms? Or birthing positions. <laughs> oh well, I'll do the burping one first because it's quicker. It's basically say, go on YouTube, <laughs> find out what works for your baby, and use that. Okay until it doesn't, and then find another one. And remember that because it's baby's body on our body, 
what works for us might not work for our partners, might not work for our mother-in-law. And this one, and I say this from personal experience, I used to get so jealous that my baby would sleep or burp on somebody else's shoulder much better than mine. I'm like, well, I should be able to do this. And I was so deep in postnatal depression that I took it as a personal insult. My advice to any parents who have somebody who has a superpower of burping or sleeping or something, don't take it personally, just use them. Yeah. Like absolutely use that as support that goes right. Here you go. Can you get the air out of this little thing for me? Please? Do we need to actually hear a burp or something to know? Because sometimes you try so long to get a burp and you're padding, padding or whatever you're doing and it's just nothing. Like, is there, is that enough? Is there a cutoff point where, okay, this baby's not bringing up anything. We're just moving on. I mean, there, there is, you've got to, and again, every baby is different. And this is about reading each baby and understanding because as parents, you're there with baby. If they're bringing up milk half an hour after their feed, well, it's more likely that it's air driven, mm-hmm. you know, and this is where sometimes babies are bringing up milk. It's because of an allergy and they might have no air in their tummy whatsoever. So they're never going to burp. And this is why going back and understanding what's going on for each child first is so much more powerful because you're like, it can give parents the confidence of, oh yeah, we got two reps, we're done. We need to look out for other things. And different families are doing different things. You know, this really is a journey to the same place. You know, if I was to say, it is, and every journey through reflux is different. So if I was to say to you girls, hey, let's meet in Japan. And if I said, go east. (laughs) You guys are never going to get to Japan if you go east, are you? I might. I'm very bad with directions. (laughs) (laughs) Oh dear, but yeah, but then, you see, you like from from Australia, you're going to go around the globe in the southern hemisphere. You're not going to come up in the northern hemisphere if you go due east. So knowing our starting point for every child is so important to get the right directions, the right plan of action. Mm-hmm. And like Christy said, is there a better position to feed to stop air going in? So there is, and there isn't. Again, every baby is different. I go into it a lot of more detail in this in my online courses, but. The first thing to look at to maximize baby's ability to control the flow of milk and to swallow properly is the angle between their mouth and their throat and the alignment of their head. Okay, because this is all tongue function, this particular one. If you, I don't know whatever you girls did when you were younger or maybe last weekend, but when I was in university, I used to neck bottles a bit. And to do that, I would look Christy up definitely. and <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to make any judgments. I know what I did. And it was, it might even have been Smirnoff Ice in my day. But <laughs> we open our throat and pour it in. So if you have a child who's looking up to feed, they cannot swallow properly. Okay. So having their mouth at a 90 degree angle to their throat gives them and their tongue this maximum ability to move properly. Equally, if a baby has their chin, down on their chest when they're trying to drink. Now the tongue needs to try and move further to control the swallow. Okay. And I see a lot of babies who are held in cradle position and they're so cradled, they look comfortable because they're all rounded, but their chin is down on their chest. And so these feeding positions alone can impede baby's ability to move their tongue properly so that they might struggle with how they're drinking. And the other one is to keep their face aligned centrally with their body 
Because if they're looking sideways and we follow them with the bottle, if they're looking towards the left, then the left side of the tongue is compressed and the right side of the tongue is stretched. And so it's not working symmetrically. And so that can also cause them to take on more air while they're feeding. So we should, as parents, you know, we don't, most of us, I've never seen anybody do it, but we don't generally chase baby with our boob if they're breastfed. We hear <laughs> they come to us. I'm just imagining. <laughs> like, come yeah, come here. You might if you've got a toddler still feeding. <laughs> or they're chasing yeah. you. But for, for babies who are bottle fed, very often we follow them with the bottle. Whereas actually we shouldn't. We should hold the bottle, center line to their midline, going, the milk is here. That is a good tip. If you want to come and get it. Mm. And then mm. if they turn their head away, give them the freedom to turn away. Because this otherwise, all of these are tiny little things that could contribute to a feeding aversion later on. If babies are, I want a break. And we're like, no, have the bottle. Mm. They're like, I want a break. So we don't want feeding to be a battle. Mm. Yeah. And do you find dummies helps with the symptoms um, to help, I know, the sucking? We find, yeah. Lava production, doesn't yeah. it? Dummies can be great and dummies can be awful and it needs to be a case-by-case basis. What they do is they stimulate the production of saliva so babies then swallows it. And if there's regurgitation coming up, it can just soothe things because it washes stuff back okay. there. Okay? However... If baby hasn't got a brilliant latch on their dummy, it also can contribute to them drinking air. And so mm. it can make it worse yes. just because they're drinking air. And so we can have this cycle of the dummy helps and then it's not. So we should use dummies, you know, very consciously. If it's helping, use it. Don't get into the habit of plugging it in just because baby's dropped it, mm-hmm. you know. And equally, it doesn't allow baby's tongue to be in the correct position. Dummies put tongues to the floor of the mouth. Tongues should be at the roof of the mouth. So we want to teach self-soothing with the expansion of the dental arch with proper tongue position. And if we can get that, then baby shouldn't need a dummy. Okay. There you go. There's so much more on that. We could talk about dummies for ah, an hour. We though. could talk to you for days, I think. <laughs> <You're> a- <laughs> I'm just thinking of all these questions that I still have. But one that I'd still really like to ask, and that is, um, I guess, more so in the terms of colleagues, something that Again, we see quite commonly over here. I'm not sure if it's a thing in the UK, but there's a few different names for it. I won't go into any names, but it's basically some drops that you can put in a bottle and give to your little one in their feed or water. A bit and like that gripe water. Uh, yeah. That you can- yeah, it's meant to help, I guess, consolidate all the air bubbles. Turn some the people air bubble swear by this stuff and some people like, no, that it, like, is it the marketing yeah. or the yeah. gimmick? <laughs> Would you like to enlighten us with your yeah. thoughts on that? So, again... So these are all coping strategies. They're never going to address the underlying cause. For me, I'm like, well, why is air a problem for baby? We need to reduce the air intake so that they can regulate that last bit of air themselves through hiccups of birth. However, I also know that parents need some of these tools to help sometimes to ease, you know, because reflux is cyclical. So you want to break that cycle in as many points as we can and then allow baby to be completely free. With the semethicone drops or with the gripe waters, some of them, as you said, Christy, create bigger air bubbles in the theory that they're easier to burp up. Some of them disperse the air bubbles so that they're easier to pass through into the gut. What you've got to do is you can try them and if they work, brilliant. And if they don't, stop. Mm. Because every child is different. That is the one thing I do know for sure is every child is different. And some of these liquids and drops 
have sweeteners in them or have sucrose in them or lactose in them or mannitol or these other ingredients that they then ferment in baby's gut. So try it, you know, absolutely try these tools. If they work, make a note of it and keep using it. And if it doesn't work, you know, read what's in front of you as a parent and go, I tried it. And then an hour later, all hell broke loose. We had a really awful night's sleep. Let's not try that again. Mm -hmm. You know, it's very much a case by case basis because every single human body is different. Okay. So just one last thing for any of our listeners, because I do know this is something that we do see a lot. How would you know that your little one could potentially have signs of cow's milk protein intolerance or allergy? How would we know? Because obviously those symptoms can get masked and be, you know, misdiagnosed. Yeah. Yeah. The truth is we have to go through the full process of looking at everything a baby has. You know, I have heard people saying, well, baby has green poo, therefore it has to be an allergy. Well, not necessarily because they can get green poo if they're drinking amino acid milk. They can get green poo if they're just drinking lots of four milk while Mm. breastfeeding and not getting enough hind milk. We can create these imbalances. We need to look at everything, you know. I will also find people saying, oh, my baby's got eczema, so therefore they've got CMPA. It's like, well, you know, 90% of eczema is dietary related. However, there's also environmental related eczema. And I worked with a client a few years ago whose baby was sleeping with a teddy beside their face and they were literally sweating on the teddy and that was causing the eczema patch. So we have to look at everything to go yes or no and make a decision. I don't believe in just try a new milk. You know, the medical community go, well, try this, try changing the feed smaller and often, try medication, try changing milks, try these. I don't believe in blindly trying things because that's what I did. And I spent three years being depressed Mm. with kids who were screaming and just, you know, it's not a time I look back on with joy, unfortunately. But if we take, absolutely, if we take an hour Like it's literally, it takes an hour to go through all the symptoms. I've got an online course, which is an hour long. You go through by the end of that, you understand which groups of symptoms go together. Mm -hmm. And based on that, what is the next steps? You know, how likely is that baby has a true cow's milk protein allergy or some other food intolerance or allergy that's presenting? And how do we figure that out? Because I've had so many people go, baby's got CMPA. I've worked with them and actually no baby's got a tongue tie. Yeah, right. It's nothing to do with the milk. And babies end up on amino acid milks when they don't need them. And it's really important because the amino acid milks do not have the correct macronutrient profile to support the development of a strong metabolism in infants. It's one of the reasons we're getting increased rates of obesity in children who are formula fed is because of the balance of the macronutrients. And and like the amino acid formula are the worst and the hydrolyzed ones, they're the worst ones for it. They are brilliant if baby really needs it. And so all things have their place. I just don't agree that we should blanket try switching formula, blanket try medication or blanket try anything when we can be really specific and get really fast answers for every child. Mm. But one of those big things that to look out for, would this be correct? Like you said earlier, like blood, mucus, any of that sort of stuff in the stool of a baby. Yeah. Now, mucus can also happen when baby's teething. Okay. So it, again, it's Mixed not, with other oh, this is the thing, yeah. it's not one thing all the time. If there's any blood, baby needs to go to A&E straight away. Mm-hmm. Like that is a medication referral every time. And it doesn't, the thing is, it doesn't always mean an allergy. 
I worked with clients a few years ago whose baby had an intussusception, which is when the gut had basically curled back on itself and they had developed an intestinal blockage. And their doctor had told them, oh, it's probably dairy allergy, dairy allergy. I saw a picture of this particular poo and I'm like, no, that's an A&E. That is not a dairy allergy. You need to go to A&E straight away. Um, is that an emergency? Yeah, accident emergency, emergency room. Yeah. Blood is always cause for concern when it's in the digestive system. If baby's getting red in their poo, it means the lower part of their digestive system is bleeding somewhere. Mm -hmm. If it's black in the poo, it could be higher up in the digestive system. So it could be damaging the esophagus or the stomach. Or it could be like 24 hours after a tongue tie release and they've had a little bit of blood and they've swallowed it. So a tongue tie release would be explained black in the poo, black bits of blood. Or if they're breastfeeding and mum has cracked and bleeding nipples and so they're essentially drinking. Blood. Yeah. However, bright red blood does not come from these explainable causes. So is always a medical referral. Always. Yeah, you don't want to mess around with that. No. Yeah, I think overall for us, like everything you've said today, it makes complete sense. And we definitely do see a lot of clients come to us and say, my baby's got reflux. Do you think you can help us? Have you worked with reflux bubs? Yes, we have worked with so many. And to be 100% honest, as you're saying, Anya, when babies cry less, those symptoms are going to be reduced. And when a baby's getting the sleep they need, they're not crying as much. So therefore those symptoms Absolutely. are reduced. So I can definitely see that reflection there. And I'm sure this is all going to be really helpful for any of our clients who would like to, I guess, further with you. And I'm sure there's going to be a lot, but when should they seek help? Is that just when they use their instinct and feel that something's not right? When should they come to you and, and seek help? As, as soon as they want help. As soon as they want help, like there is, yeah, you're like, you, there's, there's no need to wait and suffer longer than, you know, I, looking back, I could have done a lot for my baby when she was born, if I knew what I was looking for, but I wasn't around for me in the way I am now back then. So you don't need to wait because when you understand what's going on, it might be that as baby grows older, other things crop up, but you can be equipped to deal with them. You know, so as soon as a parent feels like they want help, they want answers and they're not getting them wherever else they've looked, come to me or come to me first. You don't need to try out everything else first. We will pop all of your links in our show notes and your details for our clients. Be able to get in contact with you because, yeah, what you offer is pure gold and we are so grateful for you too. And there's not a lot of information out there that really goes into it. So it's, yeah, it's fantastic what you're doing. It's really good. Yeah, I am. I mean, I it is very much, for me, it's education because, you know, knowledge is power. Mm. And the knowledge about this stuff is the power to make decisions on behalf of our children. Absolutely. You know, because that's what we do as parents. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank okay. you so much. No problem. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us for today's episode of the Sleep Teacher Pod. We hope you've walked away feeling just that little bit more at ease with your parenting journey. Please remember, nothing is a problem until it actually becomes a problem for you and your family. If you've enjoyed our company today, we would love if you could please subscribe or leave a review or maybe even both. But if you are wanting more sleep tips right away, use the link in the show notes to find out how you can get started with one of our amazing sleep consultants and follow us over on Instagram at The Sleep Teacher. We can't wait to be back in your ears next week with more sleep tips. Nighty night. <laughs>